thank you so much, uh, Ellen, for that beautiful offertory and to Kevin and all of the praise team uh, choir for leading us in worship. Uh, some of you may have seen us um, helping John Clark to the back. We think he's going to be just fine. May have gotten overheated. Did call EMS just as a precaution. So if you hear something going on, that's what it is. But we prayed with him uh, back there in the back, and he, he declares that he's fine. But we're going to make doubly sure that he's okay. So for those of you who uh, wanted to know about that, I wanted to give you an update. I'm glad you're here today. Uh, before we launch into the message for the morning, which hopefully you've noticed already is not from Philippians, I want to share something with you this morning that, that I'm very excited about, your staff is very excited about, and your church leadership is very excited about, and hopefully something you have already heard about called the Transformational Church Assessment Tool, or TCAT as we call it for short. This is a simple tool that's really designed to help us as the people of God answer the question, how are we doing at being the church of Jesus Christ right here at Taylor's First Baptist? There may have never been a more important time to ask that question. The church of Christ in America today is in precipitous decline. We have lost much of our influence in the culture. The church has become increasingly irrelevant to many people in the culture. It's becoming more and more obvious as church attendance falls across the country that some things must change if the church is going to be able to survive and thrive in a postmodern, post-Christian age. I love a verse found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now we're going to be looking at a moment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes and he says this, and I'm going to read from the Amplified Bible. Paul says, and we all with unveiled faces, continually see the glory of the Lord. And so we are progressively being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to even greater glory. I love that. Paul says we need to be individually and as the people of God constantly being transformed, moving from one level of glory, one level of influence, one level of becoming like Christ, one level of impacting our communities to even greater levels of doing that. And Paul says we need to be doing that continually. This kind of radical change and growth and transformation, really, church, is at the very heart of the Christian message and the Christian mission. It is a non-negotiable for those of us who proclaim to follow Christ. But while we're supposed to see increasing and ever-expanding transformation in our lives and in our churches, unfortunately, what we too often see is stagnation. The cultural influence of the church is waning Leadership in the church is often embattled. Small group participation is struggling. Generational differences are becoming more pronounced. 
Personal preferences often seem to be trumping missional purpose. And the only remedy is for us to return to our calling of being a transformational people and a transformational church. How do we know how we're doing at this task? Well, historically, the measurement for the church has focused on the three, what, what some have called the three B's, bodies, <laughs> budgets, and buildings. In other words, we've been asking how many people are coming to the church, how much money are we taking in, and are our facilities adequate to support our programs and to keep our people happy? Well, those standards of measurement are okay. They have their place, but they really keep us inwardly focused and self-absorbed and church-based. We need a different standard of measurement if we're going to be a transformational church. We need to be asking the question, are our folks really following Jesus? Are they living on mission? How many disciples are we making, and are those disciples making disciples? Are we being changed by Jesus? Are we walking with Jesus? Are we being sent out by Jesus? Those are important questions. When you came in uh, this morning, you should have received this little brochure. I'd like to ask you to take it out for just a second. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here, but hopefully you are familiar with this. If you open it up and look at the inside on the very top, it gives you the vision statement for Taylor's First Baptist Church. It says that our purpose, our vision, is to make disciples as we encounter God, equip believers, and engage the world. This is our purpose, and we must never lose sight of that purpose. Everything we do here at Taylor's needs to be measured by this standard. Is our worship, for example... Helping us encounter God, equip believers, and engage the world? Are our life groups helping us encounter God, equip believers, and engage the world? How about our children's ministry, our, our student ministry, our senior adult ministry, our recreation ministry? Everything we do, are those things helping us encounter God, equip believers, and engage the world? Are we going to see this kind of transformation in our own lives and in our church? And as a result, are we going to see it in our community and in our nation and among the nations? You see, a transformational church is not a church, it's not a good church full of good people who do good things. That's not a transformational church. A transformational church is Christ's church full of Christ's people who are doing Christ's thing. It's a group of believers that are so empowered by the gospel that we change everything we touch. Family, workplace, school, everywhere, the community. And as a result, we begin to see this transformation take place in our own culture, in those places where we need to see it happen the most, in the areas of poverty, homelessness, Divorce, addictions, gangs, crime, teenage pregnancy, violence. A transformational church begins to see the kingdom of God break into those kinds of places and create real change. And we begin to see real power. 
See, for too long, the church of Jesus Christ in America today has become a symbol of gathering for one another instead of scattering for the sake of others. That has to change. And so that's why we're asking you to help us with this transformational church assessment tool. We need your help to measure how we're doing in these critical areas of transformation. Individually, are we being transformed? As a church, are we being transformed? Is our community being transformed because we are here? Uh, The TCAT is not a survey. It's not a venue for stating what we like or dislike about certain things in the church. It is a tool for assessing the transformational intentionality and influence and impact of our church. And you're being asked to participate in this because we need your participation. In fact, our goal is 100% participation. And you can do this absolutely anonymously. Now, next week, you're going to actually receive some instructions about how to take the TCAT. You can either take it online or you can get a paper hard copy if you, if you prefer. It's going to be absolutely anonymous. Nobody will know who you are. Now, if you go online and take it at Lifeway, it's going to ask for your name. It's going to ask you to give a username and a password, but that's just for your benefit so that if you don't finish it in one sitting, you can go back and finish it later. But we don't receive any of that information. Uh, This is totally anonymous, but we need your help so that we can really begin to get a line on how we're doing transformationally as a congregation. Now, your deacons, your life group leaders, and many of your ministry area leaders have already taken the TCAT, and they can help you uh, if you have uh, further questions. We're going to have a lot of stuff here next week to help you because it goes live next Sunday. You can begin. There'll be about three weeks where you can take this and really help us. And we're asking you this. Please take it soberly, take it seriously, and take it prayerfully. Help us know where we are as a church, as God works in us and through us to bring transformation to our own lives, to our church, and to our community. So that's going to start next Sunday. We'll be continuing to follow up with you about that, but I wanted to give you a little bit of of information and heads up on that, and there'll be more instructions. You'll be able to start taking this next Sunday. Now, I want to share with you a little bit about transformation in my own life and understanding what that means and seeing that at work. In our text for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, many of you know that uh, perhaps I went to college at the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. I loved my time there. Uh, It was a great experience. I would do it again. People ask me that all the time. Would you really do that again? Yes, I'd do it again. But I have to tell you that the Citadel was not the easiest place in the world to be a Christian. It was a tough place to be a believer. Some of us did some calculating one time, and I think we came up somewhere roughly, this was not scientific, that that we Christians were outnumbered probably about 28 to 1 on that campus. Uh, there, there, There weren't a lot of us, but there were just enough of us to sort of make everybody else just a little uncomfortable. And one of those folks that we made especially uncomfortable was a classmate of mine by the name of Dave. Dave was a big fellow, well over six feet tall, good-looking, blonde hair, blue eyes, 
Uh, junior year, he was the highest ranking junior in our battalion. Senior year, he was the commander of the Summerall Guard, if you're familiar with that elite marching and rifle team. Dave was a nice guy. Everybody knew him, but he didn't like Christians. Several of us had tried to talk to Dave on occasion, invited him to church, tried to witness to him. Dave would always turn us down point blank. He would say, you guys just don't understand. I don't, I, I, I don't have anything personally against you, but I don't want to hear what you're talking about. You're just too different. You do some weird things. You say some strange things. You are a funny bunch. I never will forget one night after Dave had gone on one of his tirades, I was reading my Bible, and I came upon some verses now Back then, we didn't have a lot of different translations, uh, modern, up-to-date translations like we do today. So I was reading from the King James, and it says this. You'll see that verse listed in your message guide. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And I thought, man, that is not what I want to hear. If Dave read that, that would probably be about the only verse in Scripture he would agree with. He really thinks we are peculiar do you know what the dictionary says about peculiar? Unusual, strange, eccentric, requiring special consideration. And I thought, boy, Dave would agree with that. And then, if you go on down to verse 11, this is from the New American Standard. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to obtain from fleshly to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against your soul. Now this was about the time the movie ET if you're familiar with that the extraterrestrial hit the theaters and I thought oh man Dave would agree with that too. We must seem as strange to him as if we were aliens from another planet. And I'm going to tell you the truth I got discouraged, more than a little discouraged. I thought, what's the use? We're outnumbered. Half the people here think we're strange or crazy. How can we ever make an impact when people think we are just so different? You know, you may have never thought about this before, but when Jesus walked the earth, he was so different that most people couldn't handle it. Most people who looked at Jesus saw somebody who was so different and so distinct that they actually said he had lost his mind. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, look at these verses. It says, Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Folks, this is Jesus' own family. They looked at him and said, he's losing it. Jesus has obviously got a screw loose someplace. He's out of his mind. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul. These are the PhDs. They looked at Jesus and said, this guy is crazy. That's how the world looked at Jesus. That's how it looked at the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul wasn't like us, a lot of us. Paul didn't get saved one day and then decide 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later he was going to really live it. No, Paul said that very day, I grabbed hold of that thing for which 
Christ grabbed hold of me. And if you go to Acts chapter 26 here, you'll read the account of Paul's trial before Festus, the Roman procurator, and Herod Agrippa, the king of Judea. And so in Acts chapter 26, Paul is recounting for them his conversion experience. He's talking about his commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, beginning in Jerusalem and then going out to to others. He tells about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And Festus and Agrippa are listening to Paul, and you get just sort of get the idea that they've listened for about as long as they can listen, as long as they can stand it without saying anything. But then in verse 24, look at this. You, You see Festus just can't contain himself anymore. And it says, as Paul was saying these things, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is actually driving you insane. Paul, you're out of your mind. You know, you're talking like a crazy man. I want you to know, this has always been the reaction of the world to Christ and to his followers. But in every single generation, church, there have been those who have been willing to stand up and be labeled strange, odd, crazy, out of their minds for the sake of Christ because they believed that the cause was worth the cost. There were those who believed in the cause so much that they hand-copied, letter by letter, the book of God. Others we read about were poured over with pitch and set on fire to light the arenas of Rome. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 11 that some of these willingly faced torture and imprisonment. They endured public humiliation and flogging. They were put in chains. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death with the sword. They were willing to be called strange, odd, crazy, out of their minds for the sake of Christ. Oh, church, that we would be so willing. That we would be so committed that we would gladly be called strange, crazy, odd, out of our minds for Jesus' sake. Now, having said that, let me say this. I'm not suggesting you go out on the street corner, be some kind of fanatic, beat people over the head with your Bible, shout Scripture at them from the street corners, You know, if if what you do causes everybody to think you're a nut, you may be one. If some people think you're crazy, you know what? That's okay. If nobody thinks you're strange, friend, let me tell you, you're in trouble. If nobody ever tells you that something is wrong with you, then my friend, something is wrong with you. Because here's a key truth. The more like Jesus I become, the more strange I am going to seem toward those who are cool toward the things of God. 
The more like Jesus I become, the more strange I'm going to seem toward those or to those who are cool toward the things of God. Some of us haven't caught on to that yet. We haven't caught on to the fact that a commitment to Jesus Christ is a radical commitment. It's supposed to have a radical impact on our lives. It's supposed to make us radically different people. It's supposed to transform us from the inside out so that we are different from what we were before. So why will the world and worldly people think we're crazy for following Jesus? Well, we see some reasons here in a text that I, I want us to look at for a few minutes this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. And it's really built around Paul's words in verse 13 where he says, If we're out of our mind, it is for the sake of Christ. See, if we're really serious this morning about being a follower of Jesus, if we want to be a New Testament Christian, a biblical Christian, I'm not talking about being a cultural Christian. I'm not talking about playing the church game, talking the church talk. I'm talking about having the real thing, living the real thing. Then every now and then somebody ought to be telling you and somebody ought to be telling me how different we are. How strange we are. Why? I want to tell you why. And I want you to use these three lessons this morning sort of as measuring sticks for your life, even as I use them as measuring sticks for my own. Why will the world and worldly people think I'm out of my mind for following Jesus? Three things very quickly. Number one, as a follower of Jesus, I have been given a different mission. I have been given a different mission mission. Look at verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Do you understand that that is your mission this morning? As a follower of Jesus Christ, that is your God-given task. Your mission, my mission, is to persuade men. What are we to, to persuade men of? Well, Look here at verse 20. Paul says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Here's the mission. Your mission, my mission, is to persuade men to be reconciled to God. It is to urge men to make things right with God. It is to talk to men and women, students, boys and girls, and implore them to give their lives to Jesus Christ. That is your mission. That is my mission. I got to tell you, a lot of Christians are confused about that. A lot of us think that our mission is to come to church, read our Bibles, live good moral lives, help people from time to time. Now, those things are part of the Christian life, and they're good things, but they're not the mission of the Christian life. Your mission and my mission, and there's only one, and that is to persuade men, to persuade them of their sin, to persuade them of their separation from God, to persuade them of their need for a Savior. Church, God has given to us, look at verse 19, God has given to us this ministry this message, this mission of reconciliation. Now, church, let me tell you, that is a radically different mission 
from the mission of the world. Let me tell you what the mission of the world is. The mission of the world is live and let live. That's the mission of the world. You do your thing, I'll do mine. I won't step into your space, you don't step into my space. You don't try to force your standards on me, and I won't try to force my standards on you. That is the mindset and the mission of the world in which we live today. Live and let live. Don't talk about religion. That might offend somebody. Don't talk about Jesus, good Lord. You'll embarrass somebody. Don't talk about sin. You're going to turn somebody off. That might hurt my business, hurt my reputation. That'll hurt my social life. Somebody might think I'm weird. Can I say to you today, God's Word says we are here to persuade men. The only reason why you are here and I am here today after we became Christians is because God has a mission for us to carry out. If he did not, then the moment we accepted Christ, we might as well have just dropped dead and take us on to heaven, right? If that's all Christianity is about, getting saved and going to heaven, but God doesn't do that. He leaves us here because he has given us a mission, and that mission is to persuade men. It doesn't matter what the world says. We're here to let God make his appeal through us. We're not hindered by what people think. We're here with an appeal from God himself. Now, what's going to happen if you take that mission seriously? A lot of people might not like you. A lot of people are going to misunderstand you. A lot of people might think you're crazy, you're out of your mind. Paul knew that. That's why I use the word ambassador here in verse 20 to describe our role as Christians. You know what an ambassador is, right? It's a spokesman from one country who lives in another country. An ambassador spends his time living among people who speak a different language, who have different values and traditions, and who largely follow a different way of life. That's a pretty good description of a Christian. You try to be God's representative in a sinful world, you're going to see it's a lot like living in a foreign country. People out there talk a different language, they follow a different way of life, they have a different set of values, and yet the Word of God tells us we can never be content to live and let Live. We can never be content to cocoon ourselves here within the four walls of this building. We're here to persuade men. That is our mission. And because it is a radically different mission from the mission and mindset of the world, if you take it seriously, a lot of people are going to think you're out of your mind. You've been given a different mission. Number two, As a follower of Jesus, I've been given a different motivation. I have a a different motivation in the way I live my life, what drives my life. I hope you do. Let me ask you a question. What motivates the world? Think about it. What is it that motivates the world out there? Why do people do what they do? Why do they live the kinds of lives that they live? What determines the choices that they make, the values that they set, the priorities that they live by? Do you have any idea? I'll tell you what motivates the world. One thing selfishness. People do what they do to benefit themselves. They do what they do to satisfy their own desires. You set your goals to meet your own needs. You live for yourself. You do what you want to do. 
That's what motivates the world. But I hope you understand that as followers of Christ, we have a different motivation. Paul says we do not make our choices. We don't set our goals. We don't live our lives based upon our own selfish desires. Life is not about us. Our motivation is not what we want, but what Christ wants. Do you see that here in verse 14? Look at it. For Christ's love compels us. That means it motivates us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Stop. Question. I don't want you to answer this too fast. Paul says here, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Are you convinced this morning that Christ died for you? Do you really believe that Roman soldiers drove nails through Jesus' hands and feet, thrust a sword into his side, rammed a crown of thorns down upon his head, hung him up on a cross to die. Are you convinced that he did that for you, church? Are you convinced that he, that he did that for you? Let me tell you something. I believe with all of my heart that one of the main reasons why we do not live the kinds of lives that God calls us to live is because we have forgotten what happened on Calvary. Now, we know it up here. We know it up here. But it's become an event of history, part of our tradition. We focus on it on Good Friday, Easter Sunday. But it doesn't stay in front of us daily as our great motivation for living the Christian life. Church, we are here today because of what happened on Calvary and because the love of Christ compels us. That is our motivation. And Paul goes on in verse 15 to say, And Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. We're not here to live for ourselves, church. We are here to live for Christ and for those who do not know him, to persuade them. We have unfortunately developed a massively and deeply unbiblical concept of at-homeness in this world. We have lost largely the idea of being an alien, being a sojourner, being a stranger, being an exile. And we have become in America today as believers very much at home in our culture. And it is not good. It is hurting us. It is hindering our transformational influence in the world today. We have become domesticated, comfort-seeking, 
entertainment-addicted, prosperity-loving, security-clinging, approval-desiring Christians, and none of those things are part of what God's Word says it means to be a follower of Christ. None of those things. But you try to do that. You try to live for Christ in this world. People will say you're crazy. What do you mean live for Jesus? Man, you'll never get ahead in life. Live for Jesus? (laughs) You'll never get what you want. You'll never make it to the top. You'll never have any friends. Live for Jesus, you're out of your mind. Listen, it is a crazy message in a world that is motivated by self, but it is part of what it means to follow Christ, and it is part of what makes me different, and it is part of what should make you different, right? Right? Man, we get blank looks on our faces and shock and dismay and awe when we hear this sometimes. This is what the Word of God says. We have a different mission. We have a different motivation. But thirdly and finally, and you'll be glad I'm bringing this to a close. (laughs) Oh, me. Don't like me so much anymore, do you? Number three is a follower of Jesus Christ, and this is the most important. This is what what undergirds everything. I have been given a different makeup. I have been given a different makeup. Love this verse. I hope you do. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation. The old has what? Gone. The new has come. We saw something similar to this last week in what Paul was saying in Philippians. Here again in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the he is there is not in the original language. That's added by the translators to make the sentence a little smoother. and Nothing wrong with doing that. But Paul's words, as he originally penned them, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. If you're in Christ, new creation. There's no room for any debate. There's no room for any vacillation here. If you are in Christ, that equates to new creation. When you receive Christ into your life, Paul says, something radically happens. There is total transformation of your life. You become a new person inside and out. In fact, the word Paul uses here to describe that change literally refers to an act of creation. At the moment of conversion, the moment you invited Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life, God created a brand new person. That means you're different. You're not like you were before. You have a different makeup. And with that new makeup comes new relationships, new attitudes, New values, new priorities, a new lifestyle, a new way of looking at life, a new way of living life, and your purpose in life. Now, you try to explain that to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and he'll think you're crazy. 
you tell the world that you're a brand new creation of God, you know what they'll think? Right? So what do you do? Here's what you do. You live it. And 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 you live it. Until they can't deny it. And in the process, you will demonstrate the truth of verse 18 that all this is from God. All this is from God. It's Christmas, 1985. I received a phone call from a girl by the name of Mary. I recognized Mary's voice. She had been a cheerleader, female cheerleader that came from the College of Charleston. They would come and cheer for our football teams because at that time we didn't have girls at the Citadel. And so our female cheerleaders usually came from the College of Charleston, and she, she was one of those cheerleaders. And she had called me up, and she had married, of all people, my old Citadel classmate, Dave. They'd been living out in California for several years, but... They were back in South Carolina visiting their family. I was in my first pastorate down in Manning, South Carolina, and they wanted to have a Christmas party for, for some of the Citadel grads, of some of those guys who, who graduated together, and I didn't want to go. Oh, I didn't want to go. But I hadn't seen Dave at that time probably for about uh, seven years or so, so I decided to go not knowing who all would be there. And, as I, and, and when I got there, knocked on the door and walked in the room. You know who was there? Let me tell you who was there. All those Christians from the Citadel that David thought were so weird when we were there together, and they were the only ones there. And I thought, oh boy, he is going to let us have it. But it wasn't very long before Dave started sharing about how he too had received Christ into his life and how his life had changed. And how he'd found a whole new sense of meaning and purpose in life. And one thing he said I will always remember. He said, you know, when we were all at the Citadel, I thought you guys were nuts. I wasn't sure about you at all. I thought you were really strange. But I'm glad you didn't give up on me. I'm glad you never stopped doing what you were doing just because I thought you were crazy. I know now that I'm the one who was crazy for not listening to you sooner. My friends, to a world out there, if we take this thing called Christianity seriously, to, to, to that world out there, we're going to seem very odd, strange, crazy, maybe even out of our minds. That's how the world's going to look at us, and that's how the world ought to look at us. But people need the Lord, right? People need the Lord. 
And the messenger is you. And the messenger is me. And I want to tell you real Christianity, real Christianity, it'll win out. Even if people think we're crazy. doesn't mean everybody you talk to is going to come to Christ. But it'll win out. Even in a world out there. We've got a different mission. We're here to persuade men to give their lives to Christ. We've got a different motivation. We no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. It is the love of Christ that compels us, that motivates us. And we have a different makeup, radically new, transformed people, individually and corporately, as the body of Christ here at Taylor's. This is what transformation is about. This is what we are here for. And I hope you will embrace what we're trying to do with this transformational church assessment tool. And again, that you'll, you'll, you'll approach it prayerfully and seriously and help us measure where we are in this important area of life transformation because people out there need what we've got in here. But they'll never come in here until we're going out there and being that people on mission with God. I want you to bow your head with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, help us to realize that we are on a journey that is exciting. We're on a journey full of purpose. We're on a, we're on a journey, Lord, that, that's, that's leading us to, into your very heart because you're all about transformation. And if we are in Christ today, we are new creations. We're not supposed to be the same way that we were before. Everything has changed. And our lives have been reoriented away from self and toward you and your word and your will and your purposes for us as your people in this place. Forgive us, God, when we, when we, we allow ourselves to become so inwardly focused, so church-based, so self-absorbed. When there is a world out there that is hurting and dying and going out into a Christless eternity, Lord, we want to make a difference out there. But first, you've got to be able to make a difference in here. You've got to be able to make that difference in our lives individually. You've got to be able to make that difference in our church to make us a transformed and transformational people who are here for folks like Dave and the Susies and the Jones and the, and the Mikes and the Bills and the Harrys and the Sallys and the... Susie's of our world who right now are driving by, walking by, not giving this church a thought, not giving you a thought. God, help us, shape us into a people who are on mission with you. May that be our heartbeat, our passion, above all else, for your honor and glory, for the sake of what you want to do in us, in this church, in our community, in our nation. And among the nations is our prayer in Jesus' name.
I want to ask you to join me in standing, if you would, please. We're going to take just a minute. We're going to sing this great hymn of the faith, All to Jesus I Surrender. Right where you are or here at this altar, would you make that the prayer of your heart? If I can pray with you, encourage you, we're in this journey together. I pray you'd come. This is an opportunity for you to say, God, I want you to transform my life, and I want to be part of transforming my church and my community, this nation and the nations. I want to be part of that. If you do, this is your opportunity to respond. However God leads you, you come as God speaks to your heart. Sing.